0: Chapter 7 of Charles Simeon by Henley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Preacher, Theologian, Churchman. His style of delivery, which to the last was remarkably lively and impressive, in his earlier days was earnest and impassioned in no ordinary degree, the intense fervor of his feelings he cared not to conceal or restrain. His whole soul was in his subject, and he spoke and acted exactly as he felt. Occasionally, indeed, his gestures and looks were almost grotesque from the earnestness and fearlessness of his attempts to illustrate or enforce his thoughts in detail, but his action was altogether unstudied, sometimes remarkably striking and commanding, and always sincere and serious. So Mr. Carras describes Simeon as a preacher, Another of his old friends, canon Apner Brown, gives us a similar recollection. A single remark of Wilberforce's in reference to a specific occasion accurately describes him as, at all times, Simeon is in earnest. One could hardly help noticing a peculiar look of earnest reality at all times stamped upon his countenance. His distinct articulation, unlaboured utterance and accurate pronunciation, except when an occasional school quaintness occurred in such words as quality, etc., fixed the hearer's attention upon the message and not on the speaker. His reverential air, his deep unfeigned sincerity, his impassioned reality, his unflagging energy, satisfied the hearer's that he deeply felt and meant to the fullest extent what he was saying. The correctness of the diction, the frequent eloquence of the style, the honest sincerity, the thoughtful originality, soon compelled even a stranger to forget the peculiarities of manner or gesture, and to listen with deep, often with breathless attention, as to an ambassador from God delivering a powerful and loving message to each hearer individually, who ever heard a dry sermon from Simeon's lips, or had to listen to a dull remark in conversation with him. His English, as shown in his university sermons, where his style is, so to speak, seen at full length, is accurate and strong, a good specimen of the writing of the closing 18th century when our prose attained a high general standard. It is never ambitious, never ornamented. To be understood and to come close to the conscience and heart is the unmistakable purpose everywhere. But the directness and gravity of this purpose keep the language always above tameness and often lift it to a noble level. I take a specimen, almost at random, from the sermons of 1823. The theme is the excellency and glory of the gospel, and the text, the almost closing words of the third chapter to the Ephesians. In my text it is said that a view of this sublime mystery will fill us with all the fullness of God. And what can be meant by this? Can it be supposed that a creature should ever resemble God in his natural perfections? No, but in his moral perfections we both may and must resemble him if ever we would behold the face of God in peace. Nay more, we must not only partake of his moral perfections, but must have them all united and harmonized in us, even as they unite and harmonize in God himself. For instance, while justice and mercy and truth and love find in us on all occasions their appropriate operations, we must be careful that the opposite graces of faith and fear, humility and confidence, meekness and fortitude, contrition and joy, have full scope not only for occasional, but for constant and harmonious exercise. In a word, we should resemble God who is light itself. In light, you know, there is an assemblage of widely different rays, some of which, if taken separately, might be thought to approximate rather to darkness than to light. But if the more brilliant rays were taken alone, though they might produce a glare, they would never make light. It is the union of all in their due proportion and in simultaneous motion that constitutes light. And then only when all the graces are in simultaneous exercise, each softening and tempering its opposite, then only, I say, do we properly resemble God. The moral force of his preaching, the thrill it sent through the soul, is often commemorated by his friends. One sermon preached at Edinburgh in 1798 was long remembered for this electric power. It is thus described by one who heard it. I remember well his preaching a most striking sermon on ministerial duties and faithfulness, in which he introduced, with a view to illustration, the Keeper of the Lighthouse on Inchkeith, the island situate in the middle of the Firth of Forth. He supposed the keeper to have let the light go out, and that in consequence the coast was strewed with wrecks and with dead and mangled bodies, and that the wailings of widows and orphans were everywhere heard. He supposed the delinquent brought out for examination before a full court and an assembled people, and at last the answer to be given by him, that he was asleep. Asleep? The way in which he made this asleep burst on the ears of his audience Who were hanging in perfect stillness on his lips, contrasting the cause with the effects, I remember to this day. What follows is characteristic. I remember on another occasion in Edinburgh, after having finished an impressive discourse, his standing up with impassioned gesture and stopping a merry jig which was commencing from the organ. He had been preaching in an Episcopalian chapel on the eternal covenant. As the lively concluding voluntary began, he started with his knees and exclaimed, No music! Let the people retire in silence and think upon the covenant. Perhaps the interruption was ill-judged, but indeed there are voluntaries and even hymns which seem only too certain to drive away the impressions of the sermon. To Simeon the work of the pulpit was inexpressibly important, and he could not politely conceal his sense of this. On another occasion in Scotland, when God had been much with him as he preached, the minister of the church, just after the sermon in the vestry, began to ask him about his travels. "'Speak to me of heaven, sir,' he answered, "'and I can talk with you, but do not speak to me about earth at this moment, for I cannot talk about it.' He was quite shocked, he said, as he told the story at King's one Friday night, I cannot bear that matter of form spirit which makes the solemnities of God's house and of worship a mere business without a reality. It has been said that no sermon is what a sermon should be if it is not also an action. Simeon's sermons, if any man's, were actions, at once products and incidents of a life which was beyond description real and full. Canon Brown says that his manner was not less attractive to the poor than it was imperative on the attention of the educated, whether they approved or smiled. In early days Trinity Church was attended by many of the villagers from the neglected country parishes near Cambridge, and Brown tells us of an old man, a parishioner of his own, in Northamptonshire. John Munn had heard Simeon preach when in haytime or at harvest he had gone into the Fen country, and often afterwards he craved to hear him again. Every now and then he would say, "'I want to go and hear Mr. Simmons. That's the man as touches my heart. Can't he just preach? And I hadn't heard him for six months.' And off he would go, tramping the fifty miles to Cambridge, living as he could, and as often as possible hearing Mr. Simmons. The soul moving power of his prime of life was with him to the last. Many years ago the late Dr. Howson, then Dean of Chester, One of Simeon's latest hearers gave me a vivid reminiscence of his own. Trinity Church was crowded as usual, aisles as well as pews. The pews were not locked now. The text was Colossians 1.18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. One passage was written forever on the listener's heart by the prophetic fire of the utterance, as the old man seemed to rise and dilate under the impression of his master's glory that he might have the preeminence, and he will have it, and he must have it, and he shall have it. It is not surprising that not only his own church, but Great St. Mary's was always thronged to hear him as the years went on. In November 1811, the sight of the overflowing church was almost electric. So says one of his old friends in a private paper before me. In 1814, there was scarcely room to move, above or below. In 1815, the audiences were immense, attention candid and profound. In 1823, when he preached the series from which I quoted just above, many were unable to get inside the doors. I have already said something of the doctrine which Simeon preached and by which he lived. Here, I offer a somewhat more detailed view of it. Could we have questioned him on his school, his system, his reply would almost certainly have been that his great hope and effort was to be biblical, loyal altogether to the revelations of Scripture, so as to take from it not only his premises, but the deductions from them, correcting every inference by that test. And he would have gone on to say that the articles of his church were, as a fact, the exact expression of his own deepest convictions on all the greatest points of revelation, that he accepted them and held them with all his heart, If he had been questioned upon his party connection, he would very likely have answered with a most energetic wish, I quote his own words, that names and parties were buried in eternal oblivion. It is plain to the reader of his life that his conversion and early Christian experiences had literally nothing to do with such things. Even of the Methodist movement, he had then heard possibly nothing, certainly nothing of Methodist doctrines, nor again of the very existence of the great church evangelicals. Ven of yelling was a discovery to him, and from Ven he would learn nothing at all of the spirit of party. From that baneful spirit, although different from a faithful and reverent jealousy for distinctive revealed truth, Simeon was kept extraordinarily free all through his life. It is most certain that his sympathies lay on the whole with the group of holy and devoted clergymen and laymen who never claimed for themselves the title evangelical, but who did so dwell upon the central message of the Evangelium, Christ Crucified and risen, as to win from it an honourable sobriquet. His dearest personal friends, from first to last, were found among them. Their opponents and satirists were also his. But, even among them, he took a perfectly independent position, nullius addictus jurare in verba, and his necessary and affectionate special relations with them were always governed and influenced by his deep and honest loyalty to Scripture, his cordial allegiance to the doctrine and discipline of the English Church as such, and his love of his Redeemer's image wherever he saw it reflected. His Biblicism comes out everywhere in his life and writings. I love the simplicity of the Scriptures, and I wish to receive and inculcate every truth precisely in the way and to the extent that it is set forth in the inspired volume. Were this the habit of all divines, there would soon be an end of most of the controversies that have agitated and divided the Church of Christ. My endeavour is to bring out a scripture, what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. I would run after nothing and shun nothing. Perhaps you little thought in what you said against the golden mean." That you would carry me along with you, but I go even far beyond you, for to you I can say in words what these thirty years I have proclaimed in deeds, that the truth is not in the middle, and not on one extreme, but in both extremes. This last sentence was written to a friend in 1825. He wonders whether the friend will not tremble for his mental soundness, but he explains himself, Here are two extremes, observing days, eating meats, etc. Paul, how do you move? In the mean way? No. To the one extreme? No. How then? To both extremes in their turn, as occasion requires. Here are two other extremes, Calvinism and Arminianism, for you need not to be told how long Calvin and Arminius lived before St. Paul. How do you move in reference to these, Paul? In a golden mean? No. To one extreme? No. How then? to both extremes. Today I am a strong Calvinist, tomorrow a strong Arminian. Well, well, Paul, I see thou art beside thyself. Go to Aristotle and learn the golden mean. But I am unfortunate. I formerly read Aristotle and liked him much. I have since read Paul, and caught somewhat of his strange notions, oscillating, not vacillating, from pole to pole. Sometimes I am a high Calvinist, at other times a low Arminian, so that, If extremes will please you, I am your man. Only remember, it is not one extreme that we are to go to, but both extremes. Now, my beloved brother, if I find you in the zenith on the one side, I shall hope to find you in the nadir on the other. And then we shall be ready in the estimation of the world and of moderate Christians, who love the golden mean, to go to bedlam together." What is commonly, though not very accurately, called the Calvinistic controversy was in vigorous movement all through Simeon's youth and early manhood. It had troubled the stream of the great Methodist revival when the Wesleys and Whitfield took opposite sides, while the church evangelicals on the whole were Calvinistic, or let us say Augustinian, whether to an extreme degree as Toplady, or with more balance and reserve as Venn, Newton and Scott. My own convictions are more with Whitfield and Venn than with their great antagonists, who were also to their last their friends. But who that has ever reverently looked, I will not say into but upon, the supreme mysteries involved in such a debate, does not soon arrive at the point of silence. And who that really seeks to throw upon these enigmas the light of Scripture does not feel that Scripture itself, while assuredly it indicates a system, refuses to elaborate one, or to authorise man to elaborate one by deduction into details, The Augustinian, taught in the school of the soul, feels that his assertion of the sovereignty of grace is important in practice, because it assigns to the divine mercy the whole praise of every salvation. When he has written that truth large on his faith and his prayers, there is little else for which he much cares to contend in the matter, that is, little which is properly religious as distinct from metaphysical. Such on the whole seems to have been Simeon's attitude in the controversy of his day. He was intensely conscious of the limits of our point of view. I am like a man, he used to say, swimming in the Atlantic, and I have no fear of striking one hand against Europe and the other against America. Under this conviction he shrunk from any but the most cautious deductions, and sought to find common rather than divergent lines. An extract from the preface to his Hori Homiletiki puts some of his deepest convictions before us with characteristic explicitness. The author is disposed to think that the scripture system is of a broader and more comprehensive character than some very dogmatical theologians are inclined to allow, and that, as wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet subserve one common end, so may truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally subserve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. The author feels it impossible to avow too distinctly that it is an invariable rule with him to endeavour to give to every portion of the word of God its full and proper force, without considering what scheme it favours or whose system it is likely to advance. Of this he is sure that there is not a decided Calvinist or Arminian in the world who equally approves of the whole of Scripture, who, if he had been in the company of St. Paul whilst he was writing his epistles, would not have recommended him to alter one or other of his expressions." But the author would not wish one of them altered. He finds as much satisfaction in one class of passages as in another, and employs the one he believes as freely as the other. Where the inspired writers speak in unqualified terms, he thinks himself at liberty to do the same, judging that they needed no instruction from him how to propagate the truth. He is content to sit as a learner at the feet of the holy apostles, and has no ambition to teach them how they ought to have spoken. In this connection, let me quote Simeon's report of an interview with John Wesley, given in this same preface to the Hori Homiletiki. A young minister, about three or four years after he was ordained, had an opportunity of conversing familiarly with the great and venerable leader of the Arminians in this kingdom, and wishing to improve the occasion, he addressed him nearly in the following words, "'Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian.' and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Permission being very readily and kindly granted, the young minister proceeded to ask, "'Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart?' "'Yes,' says the veteran, "'I do indeed.' And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ. But sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? "'No. What then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in him. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again, for this is all my Calvinism.' This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold, and as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. It appears by that wonderful record, John Wesley's journal, that this interview took place as early as December 20, 1784. I went to Hinksworth in Cambridgeshire, where I had the satisfaction of meeting Mr. Simeon, "'fellow of King's College in Cambridge. "'He has spent some time with Mr. Fletcher at Maidley. Two kindred souls much resembling each other "'in fervour of spirit and earnestness of their address. "'He gave me the pleasing information "'that there are three parish churches in Cambridge "'wherein true scriptural religion is preached, "'and several young gentlemen who are happy partakers of it. "'The three churches were probably St. Edward's, St. Giles's, "'of which Farish was then the vicar, and Trinity.' We are told a little in some notes of Thomason of Simeon's visit to the heavenly-minded John Fletcher at Maidley Vicarage. As soon as he entered his house and told him he was to come to see him, Mr. Fletcher took him by the hand and brought him into the parlour, where they spent a few minutes in prayer that a blessing might rest upon his visit. Away they went to church. Here Mr. Fletcher took a bell and went through the whole village ringing it and telling every person he met that they must come to church, for there was a clergyman from Cambridge come to preach to them. Simeon's views on baptism somewhat varied in the course of his life. His maturest opinions are conveyed in his sermons on the excellence of the liturgy preached in 1811 before the university. Great, exceeding great benefit accrues to the soul from baptism— Where the ordinance is really attended upon in faith and prayer is offered up to God in faith, we do believe that God bestows a peculiar blessing on the child, though we cannot ascertain that he does so but by the fruits that are afterwards produced. But even from the ordinance itself we may consider great good as arising to the soul, since, as in the case of circumcision, the person is thereby brought into covenant with God. The Israelites, as a nation in covenant with God, were highly privileged, for to them, as the apostle says, belonged the adoption and the glory and the covenants. But we must distinguish between a change of state and a change of nature. Baptism is a change of state, for by it we become entitled to all the blessings of the new covenant, but it is not a change of nature. A change of nature may be communicated at the time that the ordinance is administered, but the ordinance itself does not communicate it. Simon Magus was baptized, and yet remained in the gall of bitterness, and so it may be with us, and this is an infallible proof that the change which the scriptures call the new birth does not of necessity accompany this sacred ordinance. If only we will distinguish the sign from the thing signified, and assign to each its proper place and office, there will be an immediate end of this controversy. Brown records a remark of Simeon's on the same subject at a conversation party, I believe that baptism is only the investing us with a right which we shall not possess unless it is sued out by faith. His four sermons at St. Mary's on the offices of the Holy Spirit, preached in 1831, are a noble exposition, grave, candid, and soul-searching in the application. A good answer to the statement sometimes made that Simeon and his friends said little of the paraclete. They were written when the alleged renewal of the Pentecostal miracles in Edward Irving's church in London had both called new attention to the gospel of the Holy Spirit, and in many earnest minds had discredited the attempt to present it in its sacred fullness. Footnote. Mrs. Tonner, better known by her literary signature Charlotte Elizabeth, preserves a recollection of an occasion when Simeon and Irving were together on the platform at a religious meeting, soon after Irving's utterance of a peculiar view of the human nature of our Lord. Irving suddenly called on the meeting to engage in prayer while he led them. The expression of Simeon's countenance, who can portray... He rested his elbows firmly on his knees, firmly clasped his hands together, placed his chin against his knuckles, and every line in his face where the lines were neither few nor faintly marked, bespoke a fixed resolve to say Amen to nothing which he had not well sifted and deliberately approved. End footnote. Simeon utters an uncompromising warning against spiritual illusions. To be sure, writes his Quaker friend Joseph John Gurney, Thou dost not use the pseudo-gifted ones of the present day very ceremoniously. But he does not make the deplorable mistake of meeting the distortion of a sublime truth with silence about the truth itself. As God has not given the Spirit by measure to our Lord, so is there no measure fixed for the dispensation of it to us. It is our privilege not only to have the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit. Christ came not only that you might have life, but that you might have it more abundantly. Yes, he would have you to live in the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit, and purify your souls in the Spirit, and abound in hope through the Spirit, and be filled with joy in the Holy Ghost. See to it, then, that you avail yourselves of these immense advantages, and beg of God to pour out his Spirit more and more abundantly on you through Jesus Christ. I have sometimes asked myself what would be Simeon's view, were he now with us, of those movements in the Church of Christ which in late years have given a special prominence to the great word holiness. Most surely he would have looked on them with no mere prejudices, the friend of Fletcher could not do so. He would have gone all lengths with Christian teachers who emphasise the summons to the soul in Christ's name and by his power to sin no more, and who point to the prayer of the Church keep us this day without sin. He would have delighted in every testimony to the truth that boundless resources for moral deliverance and victory are laid up for us in our risen Redeemer, ready to be received and used by the hands of faith. There is nothing, he writes somewhere, which I more condemn than a proneness to rest in the mere act of complaining without getting my complaints removed." His warning or protest would have been heard only if such appeals were anywhere distorted into substitutes for the truths of the atonement, or into excuses on whatever principle for a religious tone which forgets humility and contrition. In an interview with a group of earnest Christians who had taken up with a view of Christian perfection which led them to a reluctance to confess sin, he warned them against any theory which leads a man to think of his perfection instead of searching out his imperfections. He felt, and rightly, if the scriptures are right, that where humility is absent, holiness is at least upon the wing. I love simplicity, I love contrition, even religion itself I do not love, if it be not cast in a mould of humility. I love the religion of heaven, to fall on our faces while we adore the Lamb is the kind of religion which my soul affects. But let it not be thought that he did not therefore, true to his own principle, go to the other extreme." I quote a few sentences from a letter of his old age to a friend under religious depression. "'Could I ascend with you into our Father's presence and fetch fire from the altar before the throne, or, to change the metaphor, could our souls be tuned by the same divine hand, I should understand and feel every note you strike? But I feel I understand nothing of your case except as far as words ill-comprehended can convey it. Your case is this.' I was once in earnest about my soul, I have since declined. I feel but cold and unhumbled, while confessing what ought to humble me in the dust. What must I do? The general answer to this would be, Be much in reading the holy scriptures and in heavenly meditations. Be much in prayer to God through Christ. Read the promises and rely upon them, and cast yourself entirely on Christ as able and willing to save you to the uttermost. To that purpose I might speak at large but yet I should say nothing which you do not already know. I will, therefore, touch only on what may not have presented itself to your notice. There are two errors which are common to persons in your state. First, the using of means as though by the use of them they could prevail, and secondly, the not using of them because they have so long been used in vain. The error consists in putting the means too much in the place of Christ, and in expecting from exertion what is only gained by affiance. There is a passive state of mind, a lying like clay in the hands of the potter, and a casting yourself on Christ, content to sink if he will let you sink, and to be marred if he will choose to mar you. This willingness to be saved by him altogether from first to last, and in his own time and way, and this determination to trust in him, though he slay you, and to praise him, though he condemn you, is what you particularly want. There is another thing, you are too much occupied in looking at yourself and too little in beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the former you are to be humbled, but it is by the latter that you are to be changed into the divine image. You want a greater measure of holiness to warrant your confidence in the divine promises, when it is only by apprehending those promises that you can attain the holiness you are seeking after 2 Corinthians 7, one. You must learn to glory in your infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon you. You are nothing, and it discourages you, but you must be content to be nothing, that Christ may be all in all. Such sentences might have come from Guillaume's pen in a letter to Fenelon, in La Voix Passive en foi. Perhaps the English church never had a more loving and devoted son and servant than Simeon, from the first to the last of his Cambridge life, He was, in Brown's words, resolutely and unceasingly anxious that all men should love and venerate the Church of England, instead of watching and spying out her faults, which were, he said, at the worst, no more than spots upon the sun's disc. He would say, seek not to change even what you deem faulty, for hardly any change could be effected in the prayer-book which would not result in greater evils than those which you wish to remedy. You cannot realize the evil results to England of any material alteration in the Book of Common Prayer. No other human work is so free from faults as it is. In the use of that book in public worship, he found one of his purest joys. We saw how its prayers became marrow and fatness to his soul after his conversion, and so they remained. Never do I find myself nearer to God than I often am in the reading-desk. The finest sight short of heaven would be a whole congregation using the prayers of the liturgy in the true spirit of them. He deplored the coldness and slackness of church life in the country generally, and he looked on its real resuscitation as one of the sacred objects of his own labours. And I cannot but think that not a little of the revived consciousness of corporate life and duty in the national church, often attributed almost wholly to the movement which Simeon lived to see begin at Oxford, is due to his persistent work and witness at the other centre of academic influence. It is sometimes said that Simeon and his friends exaggerated the subjective side of religion and only faintly recognised the objective side. But was it so? They never made emotion or even spiritual experience their basis or their test, and never certainly did Simeon fail in loyalty to the objectivity not only of the written word of God but of the historic ministry and sacraments. He held that the Christian minister is quite distinctively God's ambassador, not indeed a mediator, but an appointed means. He said of the benediction, In pronouncing it, I do not do it as a mere finale, but I feel that I am actually dispensing peace from God and at God's command. I know not the individuals to whom my benediction is a blessing, but I know that I am the appointed instrument by whom God is conveying the blessing to those who are able to receive it. Cordial was his loyalty to his ecclesiastical leaders. When slanderous reports of his preaching had been sent to Ely, he wrote to Bishop Dampier, unasked, the most careful and respectful explanations. As under divine providence your lordship is now become my immediate superior in the church, to whom I owe all possible deference and respect, I trust your lordship will approve of my wish to lay before you the means of ascertaining my true sentiments, and of obviating any misconceptions which the statements of others might possibly create." He calls on a young friend, a clergyman, who was disposed to resist what he thought harsh interference from his diocesan, to beware of a disloyal spirit. Write that, while it is your first desire to approve yourself to God, you are most unfeignedly desirous of giving satisfaction to the bishop as appointed over you in the Lord. His own fatal illness was caught on a visit of respect to a new bishop at Ely. Daniel Wilson, himself Bishop of Calcutta, says of Simeon in a paper of recollections printed at the close of Mr. Carus's memoir, "'He neither verged towards the great error of over-magnifying the ecclesiastical polity and placing it in the stead of Christ and salvation, nor towards the opposite extreme of undervaluing the sacraments and the authority of an apostolical episcopacy.'" It is hardly to be wondered at that some, who should have known him better, displeased with a balance of judgment that they did not share, should even have said of Simeon, who had borne social exile for the gospel's sake, he is more of a churchman than a gospel man. A passage from the close of his sermons on the excellence of the liturgy is in point here. What might not be hoped for if all who have undertaken the sacred office of the ministry fulfilled their engagements in the way we have described? What if all prayed the prayers instead of reading them, and laboured out of the pulpit as well as in it? If there were such exertions made in every parish, we should hear no more complaints about the increase of dissenters. Let me not be misunderstood as though I meant to suggest anything disrespectful of the dissenters. For I honour all that love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity of whatever church they be, and I wish them from my heart every blessing that their souls can desire." But whilst I see such abundant means of edification in the Church of England, I cannot but regret that any occasion should be given to men to seek for that in other places which is so richly provided for them in their own church. Only let us be faithful to our engagements, and our churches will be crowded, our sacraments thronged, our hearers edified, good institutions will be set on foot, yea, and our wilderness world will rejoice and blossom as the rose. We shall see later what was his brotherly respect for Christians of non-episcopal churches. Like Hall, Hooker and Jewel, he was able to maintain the most convinced and deliberate preference and allegiance without distorting it into a narrow and futile excommunication. End of chapter 7